This is the story about how God has just given me an unbelievable promise for my children. God has been telling me for weeks that I'm getting ready to walk into the promised land. And I've always known that it had a lot to do with Laura because God has just continued to tell me to wait and believe and trust and encourage. But he's also been showing me that it has to do with my children. And so it happened that about a few weeks ago, a very good friend of mine, Gustavo, took a trip to California. And he knows all about the 212 number thing. And so whenever he sees it every once in a while, he'll text me. Well, it turns out on his itinerary, it showed that he was to make a route that was 2,212 miles. And he took me the picture, took the picture, 2212. And I thought, oh, isn't that sweet? Well, ever since that he sent me that number that day, it started showing up over and over again, all over the place, 2212. And I just kept thinking, oh, that's really sweet, Lord. That's nice. That's, I mean, I don't, and he would show it to me so many times, I began to say, okay, Lord, what does this mean? 2212, is that, you know, is that two years and 212? I mean, I, what does this have to do with Laura, God? I mean, I know you're trying to speak to me about something. I don't know what it means, Lord. And I just always just assumed that God was telling me things are getting ready to get good. And I thought, well, maybe it's just saying that, you know, I'm getting closer to Laura. <clears throat> But then I just kept seeing it, and God doesn't show me numbers over and over again after I get the meaning of it and if I'm obeying it. So, for example, an example would be 333, 444, 222. I never see those anymore. Never. In the beginning, they were all I ever saw. Why? Because that's what God was telling me. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Ask me for wisdom, and I will give it to you. Um, don't pour old uh, new wine into old wineskins. But God has no reason to show those to me anymore because I'm walking in those things. So I've always noticed the way the numbers work. For example, I saw 666 twice the other day at the same time. Two trucks passing each other. And then that very day, uh, I knew that that had to do with something. And then that very day is the day that my ex-wife had my children intentionally call my parents' house after months of never doing that just so that she could make a record of a phone call, but yet she knew I wouldn't be able to actually talk to them. But God warned me in advance. But I don't see 666 ever unless I need it. Same thing with all the other numbers. Unless I'm, for example, God shows me 701 all the time. Store up the commands in your heart. He constantly encourages me, not reprimand. He has a couple of times when I got slack, showed me numbers that said, why are you not doing what I've obeyed you? So I'll get back busy obeying him. And then with this... Um, this most recent thing, he kept showing it to me, and I'm like, God, what does this mean? I, I see you keep showing it to me. So I almost gave up. And I just, yesterday, I'm sitting at a, oh, let me back up. Did two days ago, I write a, a chapter on suffering for the new book. I write a, a page, and I write this story out of my heart. I just wrote this story completely out of my heart. I, Michael, hadn't seen my children since the end of the summer in 2013, and I missed them so much. It was my year to get the children for Christmas, and all of us couldn't wait. In obedience to God, I had been saying no to any and all secular work as to not put my hand to the ministry plow and look back. I had my orders from God, and He said He would provide my needs. As Christmas got closer, I knew I wasn't going to have enough money to go. My parents offered to help, but the Lord said, Stay put. I knew if I went around him, it would be disobedience. My eight-year-old Chelsea even had her class praying that they would get to come see Dad. The day of suffering came. I begged God in tears, Please don't make me call the children and stick this dagger in their hearts, God. Please don't make me do this to them. As I was rolling around on the floor in agony, I heard these words, There are no vacations from the cross. My children had become an idol in my heart. But on that day, I discovered through suffering that they were no longer in God's reserved spot in my heart. God uses suffering. This was two days ago. Yesterday, I pull up to um, a stoplight in the car to my left, right in front of me, license plate, 2212. And it's like God says, look it up. And I'm like, all of a sudden it occurred to me that it's not something about Laura, and that it's a scripture. So God's telling me to look it up. So I thought, all right, I'm sitting in the car. Lord, I don't have a lot of time. But I felt prompted. I'm like, i got a stoplight here. Let me just start in Genesis. So I get to Genesis. And I read these words. 
do not lay a hand on the boy. This is Genesis 22.12, 2.2.1.2. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And right then and there, the Holy Spirit just confirmed. I was like, whoa, this is God telling me for weeks. He's been trying to tell me I have passed the test. And I'm learning now today, God is telling me I've passed the test. Last several days, whenever my kids have been brought up in this unbelievable alienation, my word to whoever brings it up has been, I'm trusting God. God is going to have his day. I am going to have my children in my life. It is going to happen. I have obeyed God, and God is going to honor my obedience. And so then, this morning I wake up. Actually, last night I went to bed thinking, Lord, is that really the scripture? Father, I don't want to just believe something that, you know, my heart wants to believe God. Is that, was that just a coincidence by any chance, Lord? Or is that really what you're wanting me to hear? A lot of times we'll ask God to confirm. So I got up this morning. I started thinking about it again. The Lord had reminded me to memorize some words, so I started memorizing Scripture. And I'm sitting there, and at one point I feel prompted to, to, to want to go through other Scriptures to see if there's any other possibility this could be anything besides what God is showing me. But I decide not to. I'm getting a headache. I don't have any coffee in the house. I need to go get some coffee. So on my way, I decided to take my phone and listen to the today's message from Dr. Tony Evans. It is today's new message, and it is called <clears throat> The Journey of Faith. Let me see. It's called The Test of Faith, and it's Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19. And then, as I'm driving down the road, I hear these words. The whole thing is about Genesis chapter 22, and I hear these words just a few minutes ago. So he takes his son out. He puts him on the altar. Verse 9, he built an altar, arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine what he's thinking, feeling? And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Because guess what? That was what he was told to do. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, that's Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, Abraham, Abraham, whenever God calls your name twice. See, when he told him to obey, he only called his name once in verse 1, Abraham. But now in the middle of his crisis, he calls his name twice. That means there's something special coming down the pipe. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Do not, verse 12, stretch your hand out against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know you fear me since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So I hear that and I'm just like, praise God. That is the confirmation. That's the exact verse. So I stop, I pull over in the McDonald's parking lot to take a screen capture. When I take the screen capture, it is taken at 7.55. And what is 7.55? Nothing but a promise to me about my children. Job 29, verse 4 and 5. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. God is answering my prayer and telling me that I have passed the test of putting my children up on the altar. They, in fact, were an idol in my heart. God had multiple purposes and reasons for allowing them to be out of my life for a season. But I now know that in God's timing, this promise that He's been giving me over and over about my kids... And all this time showing me 2212 was saying, you've passed the test, son. And now I'm expecting and believing and knowing that God is going to do a miracle and is going to put my children back in my life. And it wasn't just but four nights ago when God was telling me over and over, you, my son, are getting ready to enter in and possess the good land. And I said, God, please don't do Laura and the children at the same time. God is good and we are about ready to see something awesome. Michael commentary. It's important for me to point out that I do not yet fully at that time 
understand how much more God is going to direct my heart, my focus, and my understanding from thinking earthly, temporal, to heavenly, eternal. In other words, I'm speaking about, you can see God is telling me these promises. Be very careful to obey me. You're going to enter into this promised land. And of course, I have these strong desires for a wife and children, right? And yet, God is telling me I'm going to be blessed. So I'm immediately thinking, oh, God's going to bless me with all these things that I'm asking for, this wife, and he's going to give me my children back. No, he's not. What God is going to do for me is the same thing he's going to do for Abraham and the same thing he'll do for anybody that follows. God is going to bless from obedience in the natural with something in the spiritual. The children of Abraham in the blessing that Abraham receives in Genesis twenty-two twelve, is not, hey, I'm going to give you a thousand more Isaacs. Hey, I'm going to bless you with a thousand more Ishmaels. Hey, I'm going to bless you with a thousand more flesh and blood. No, we all now know from reading, especially in Romans chapter four, that we are all children of Abraham. The promise that God gives to Abraham is not that I'm going to abundantly multiply your flesh and blood, but that I'm going to abundantly multiply your children of faith. God's promise to him after he obeys God, putting Isaac on the altar, is that I am going to bless all the nations because of you. And that's you and that's me. You and I are blessed today because of what Abraham did some, say, 4,000 years ago. How incredible is that? Now, again, it's important to make this connection that God is primarily for those of us in the new covenant, which is all of us who are true Christians, blessing us spiritually. So God's showing me these passages about I'll have many descendants and, you know, oh, for the days that my children were around me and blessing me with lots of children. I even had to take some of the recordings out. Uh, there are just too many in the past where I mentioned, I think God's telling me I'm going to have a bunch of children, but I was still thinking natural children. Jesus comes along and says, flesh and blood counts for nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. John chapter 6. Paul teaches that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, when he's told that his mother and brothers are here to see him when he's out preaching, you don't see him say, oh, my flesh and blood, oh, my peeps. No, he says something that actually is like disrespectful to them. He says, uh, who is my brothers and who is my mother? They are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. God is working for spiritual children, not children of the flesh. As an example, God fulfilled these promises that he gave to me. You have to see these things from father's perspective, or you have to see it from a spiritual perspective, or you won't see it. You'll miss it. And you'll still think, well, Michael's, uh, he's cursed in spite of what God told him. It hasn't come true because uh, he's only got one of his children. One of his five children came back. And here he's telling us he's seen all these passages that are saying he's going to have a, a blessed day with all of his children around him and all this kind of stuff. All right. How many spiritual children do I have? Brothers and sisters, it's more than we can number. It's more than we can number. Not everybody admittedly emails me. I've had people that have been watching for four and five years and they say, I never emailed you until now. That means there's perhaps a few hundreds, if not thousands out there that have never come forth to say how much God used this ministry to touch them in some way. And watch, God was going to, you hear this? This is incredible, man. I mean, this is absolutely amazing. 2015, God has given me these promises. I still only have peanuts for ministry fruit, just the smallest thing. And you can see I've been doing all this local ministry, right? God's been having me have encounter after encounter after encounter. He's getting ready to, to shift me out of all of that into this worldwide ministry he has for me on the internet. And man, he is going to make so much fruit that I can't count it all. I can't keep it up, keep up with it all. I can't fill notebooks. I, in the very beginning of my ministry, I tried to keep track of emails for the children. I wanted them to see how God had used their father. Brothers and sisters, I'm not even kidding you. One of those three-inch spiral notebooks was filled up and I was like, I can't keep doing this. This was years ago. Years ago, a three-inch spiral-bound book 
those three ring binders full of emails and testimonies from Relentless Heart in the first few years of this ministry that we're, we're getting into. And I said, I, I can no longer continue to do this. It was thousands. Imagine this. This is what God is going to do. This is what he did for Abraham. He's saying, because you obeyed me, oh man, I'm going to bless the nations because of you. And do you know something? In a very small way, God did the same thing through me. Because I obeyed him and because I was willing to put my children on the altar, God was going to give me an abundance of spiritual children. Do you see how amazing this is? I have four children right now that are flesh and blood that are not really my children, according to Jesus. Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? They are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. It doesn't matter how much it goes against your flesh to hear that. The point is, it's your flesh. The carnal Christian doesn't want to hear this message. We want so bad to believe and put our hope in flesh and blood families. Ding, 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 ding. I was guilty. I used to always watch those movies at the Christmas time. I don't celebrate Christmas anymore, but I would see these families coming home and, oh, if I could just have a big family like that, that all loved and respected each other. Oh, I wish I wasn't an only child. No, not interested anymore. My hope is in heaven. My family is in heaven. My brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children are are those who hear God's word and put them into practice. Isn't it interesting that the only one of the children that my father gave back to me is the only one who has of this day truly become a spiritual child of God. Tyler is the only one who was able to see the difference between light and dark, truth and error, good and evil. He was the only one that discerned what was light in Jesus and what was dark and of Satan. And he's the only child that God has this point given back to me. Think about it. God could have given me all my children back a long time ago. He didn't. And I find it very interesting. None of them, even though when they're young children, they know right from wrong, their minds have been led astray and they have been deceived. Most of them, they're all teenagers now. So they now have enough mental faculty, enough life experience, if they wanted with God's help, to see the truth, and they have not yet. And if they don't, they will never become my children. That's what the Bible teaches. Flesh and blood counts for nothing. I'm their physical father. I pay money and send them money every month. But I said to Tyler, I said, son, what good is it that I have a blood relationship with those four children? What good is that doing them? And what good is that doing me right now? He said, nothing, dad. I said, exactly. The only thing that matters, and it's like God is even using my own children to be a sign that children of flesh and blood, family of flesh and blood, apart from the regeneration of the Spirit of Christ being born again, it counts for nothing, brothers and sisters. Jesus said he came to separate families. Go read it yourself. He says, do not suppose, Matthew 10, 34, that I came with peace. I came with a sword. He says, I came to divide people. I came to turn a son against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Do you know something? My four youngest children are my enemies. Why? On account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am telling a very different story about Christianity in my house than my ex-wife is telling in her house. I am following a very different Jesus Christ, and I believe in a very different gospel, and I have a very different spirit. My children have sided with her gospel, her Jesus, and her spirit. The only one that didn't give in was Tyler. And it may be that all of the other ones stay deceived the rest of their life. I'll tell you something scary. God has never, contrary to the promises you've heard me mention in these recordings, God has never given me a promise for my children, not even Tyler, except that I knew when we went to get him, we were going to go face hell and we would get him. And I was told that I had one child who had the gift of prophecy who would go even beyond me. That's what I was told. And I, I have reason to believe that what that prophecy uh, was spoken of was, was true. I still believe it today. Sometimes I find it hard to believe based on the times that we're in, but I still believe it today because... The other prophecy that was given to me that same day has already come true that I would touch millions for Christ. And it's already happened. It's already happened. And so, I mean, again, I think at last count, I had over 50 videos 
well over 100,000 views. I think I have probably over a dozen, over 200,000 views. And I, I have over 100, over 10,000 views or 50,000 views, I think it is. So there was over 11 million views a few months ago on the website or rather on the on the YouTube channel. That is incredible. You got to remember, make the connection to what I just said to this guy in these uh, recordings who has no idea this kind of volume. I mean, you got to understand, it's easy to just become comfortable with it. Oh yeah, this is Brother Michael. And he I first saw his video that had already been watched like 500,000 times. Or, oh yeah, I saw his story video and it was like 1.6 million. So yeah, a lot of people have seen. And right now you take it for granted. But when you're in these recordings, you're talking about... 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20 people watch my video in the first couple of days. That's it. And that's about as far as it would go. I had less than 100 subscribers that were really, you know, even could be considered subscribers. And this had gone on for years. There was nothing like what God was going to do. Now do you see God saying, because you've obeyed me, I'm going to bless you. And indeed, in a small way, he says to me what he says to Abraham, which he'll say to anybody that's faithful because of your obedience to me. Now that I know you fear me and you've not withheld your son, your only son. See, brothers and sisters, this is why I don't even hold on to anything, including the most adorable person I ever met, my wife, Persis. Because you never fail when you sacrifice anything and everything to God. The only thing I'm desiring in my life right now is God's will. Whether that was with Persis, without Persis, whether that's with my children, without my children. And I should point out, all these years later, I am blessed. Now, this is not something a lot of people would consider a blessing. For me, it's a blessing. This is my life and my walk with Jesus. I don't have that burning desire and hole in my heart for my children anymore like I used to. I have so completely learned over all these years of trusting the Lord that I don't dare want to have something or somebody in my life that he doesn't want me to. And whatever he takes away, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord as evidenced by what I've just gone through at this time with my beloved wife, Persis. And so the same thing with these children, God was going to get me to a place where I was so strong that I would hope for them, love them, pray for them, be here for them if and when they ever want to contact me and become followers of Jesus Christ. If they don't become followers of Jesus Christ, I'll have nothing for them except for just the typical kindness that you give to other heathens. That's it. That's really it. The flesh and blood, according to Jesus, counts for nothing. But see, we don't think like that. And you can see God does. And I really believe that my relationship with these children and this divorce is like a picture, another sign of showing just how differently our Father in Heaven thinks. Just how, think about it. Jesus says of his actual blood family, he says, who are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers? They are only those who hear God's word and put them into practice. End of commentary. I finished listening to the rest of that message, Testing of Faith by Dr. Tony Evans, about Abraham, and I ended up collapsing on the floor, just in tears, hands in my face, just overwhelmed at what God's goodness is, because I know that God is telling me that I'm getting ready to walk into this amazing thing that He's going to do. And I'm overwhelmed by God's goodness. And I, I now know that's why the Lord is telling me so much in advance. He's actually trying to buffer me a little bit so that I don't go overwhelmed. I mean, I am so excited and I get so emotional over His blessings and His presence. I've begged Him, Lord, please don't do Laura and the children at the same time. Please let there be time because <laughs> I've told Him I would just be a basket case. But I was thinking about how I've gotten here and I, want, I came up with this, this point that I wanted to make that... When people hear my story, one of the first hang-ups they have or they're going to have is, well, how is it that the Lord spoke to you like that? He doesn't speak to me like that. And, you know, my first thought was how important it is to tell people that you do not get worried. Oh, the the point was when people say, man, why did God do all this for you? It's to It's to help people understand the need for obedience. And I would say, I obeyed everything he told me to do to the best of my ability. <clears throat> I wasn't perfect at it. God showed me that, but he reminded me and he would speak to me. And a person's first thought, well, how do I hear God clearly like that and get specific personal direction from God? And why doesn't it look like 
to me the way he's doing it to you. And my first thoughts were, look, you cannot get hung up on how God speaks. You get hung up on desiring to obey him and desiring to hear him. And you let God choose how he wants to speak to you. You have to learn how to hear from God. It's taken me a long time, even with the with such a very concrete, specific, mathematical way that God speaks to me, it took me a long time to learn this language that God was using to communicate with me. And then my position became, once God confirmed His words, my position came became to align myself and to obey. And so someone might say, well, I just don't see God moving like that in my life, and I've never seen any miracles like that, and it must be that what God has done for you is special. And I think to myself, what a lie that is. Here's what God showed me. When God looks down from heaven, or what this thought came into my heart, when God looks down from heaven, He sees all these people that want to see Him move in their life. They want to see Him do amazing miracles and move in the supernatural. They want to see Him deliver them. They want to see Him bring justice and provision and deliverance and restoration. They want to know God like that, but they're not willing to pay the price. And someone might say, well, why did God make it so hard for us to get to know Him? And, you know, I really do want more of God, but when God looks down, He hears the words coming out of a person's mouth that don't line up with the actions in their heart. He he hears the words coming out, and so it's what I thought this morning was, I see people, God looks down and He sees Olympic athletes. He sees people making excuses about how hard it is to follow Him, learn about Him, and obey Him, because it is. It takes a lot of time to learn how to walk with God. And that's a result of the fall. That's our fault, not God's. But people say, oh, it's just so hard and I don't have the time and all that. And so as they're saying that out of this left side of their mouth, God looks down upon people like Olympic athletes, people in business, moms, people that have physical fitness goals, people that have book writing goals, people that have hobby goals. And he sees people giving massive amounts of time, energy, effort, persistence, diligence to the things that are important to them. I mean, think about an Olympic athlete who gives four hours a day of just practice plus however many hours in exercise, all for the point of performing an exercise routine that lasts a few minutes. They've done it thousands of times. And in the end, if they're not the guy who wins, they're quickly forgotten. And they have to ask themselves, what did they gain from the years of their life of sacrifice? And even if they did win, they're not remembered very long. And pretty soon they're depressed because they don't have anything else to do with their life. They end up working at Home Depot. They were an Olympic athlete now working at Home Depot. Not that there's anything wrong with working at Home Depot. My point is... What they gave themselves to did not yield a very high return on investment. My sales pitch to the the world is, listen, quit giving the best of your time, energy, and talents to the things of the world. They will never yield for you the kind of return that God does. I mean, this is what God spoke to me specifically when I asked him about business. He said, Michael, I did not make you for you to give your very best. To the business world. I made you for my purposes. You've had your chance. And now I want to use you for my purposes. And so what I'm discovering is. As I look. It's funny. I just. I'm doing a series on money right now. And showcasing some of my old videos. And and I look at. What do I have to show. For all of the energy. And the time. And the talent. And all the things that people said. Were so great about me. Mike Criswell some of the best training we've ever had. Mike Criswell's in the names with greats like Tom Hopkins and Zig Ziglar. Mike Criswell's enthusiastic, and he just has a way of explaining it. Other people, I mean, all this stuff, and people paid me tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars for my training. What do I have to show for it today? Nothing. What would those people think of me today if they could see how much money I have in my checking account today compared to then? All those sales guys that thought I was just the cat's meow and all those business owners and managers, I bet you most of them would look down upon me as somebody who's a complete loser, who's made a wreck of his life, and who really lost his, his head and went to religion. Not realizing, no, I gave up the glitz and the glamour and success as the world defines it for a time and a season, and I gave God my everything, and I'm going to continue with His help to give Him everything. But... 
I, I see myself as kind of like a spiritual Olympic athlete, albeit I don't have the same diligence they do, but I have spent for the last four or five years, on average, three, four hours a day studying the Word of God, probably averaged an hour a day or more in prayer, and really getting after God. And so that's the point I want to make is that most people want God's best, but they're not willing to make the sacrifice. So if you want to see more of God, what are you giving Him to work with? Put something on the altar of sacrifice. Show Him more than just 15 minutes or a good day or a good week that you really want Him. Show Him. That's the key. God has to look down from heaven and say, Ah, there's one. We need to strengthen Him. It's in Second Chronicles 16.9. It says it. That God looks for those whose hearts are fully committed to Him to strongly support them. And that's what I've experienced. I'm experiencing God's strong support. I don't have anything in my circumstances, really. I mean, this house is wonderful. My parents are taking care of me now. Financially, in the last three months, has been an improvement and fantastic. But I still don't have anything that people would couldn't conclude, ah, he's just a, a moocher, mooching off his parents. His parents are just, they don't know what else to do with him, and they don't want to see him starve to death. There's no real evidence, circumstantially, that God is with me. There's evidence that my parents are with me, and my parents and I all know that God's the one that moved on their hearts because my mom was the biggest persecutor I'd ever had. And now she's supporting the work that she persecuted. God changed her heart. But again, there are people who want to see circumstances change to know. And those will come with me. Those will come. God's going to change and do some things. But in the process, what He has done is to strengthen me in my walk with Him, giving me promises and guidance and direction. And that is God's best. I'll never say God's best was, oh, when He gave my kids back to me. Oh, the day I married Laura. Those are going to be highlights. Those are some of the God's best gifts to me, earthly gifts. But they're not the best gift. The best gift is the one that I already have. This relationship that I have with the Father, my love and dependence upon Him, my God, how He has changed my heart. I've found such contentment. I don't need anything. I could live without my children ever again. I could live without Laura ever again. I've already proven it. I've been without them for years. I want them in my life, but I do not want them in my life at the expense of hurting God or at the expense of missing God's presence in my life. And that's the way... God wants it. In Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. God wants you to love him first. And there are people that claim they do, and as Tony Evans says, but when God looks at your actions, your actions don't line up with your talk. Your walk doesn't match the walk you, you talk. You've got to show through action God wants to experience your love, as he says. You can tell him intellectually, you can tell him emotionally, but at the end of the day, when God sees you intentionally hurting yourself, not because you want to hurt yourself, but because you want to obey him and please him, and he sees you make a sacrifice of something majorly important in your life that's the most important thing. When you hold on to anything, a person, a thing, a place, a career, whatever it is that you hold on to, that you're afraid of losing, God is jealous of that thing. I now know this. I know this through experience. I always thought, well, it's an honorable thing for me to love my kids and to fight for them and to want them to be in my life all the time and want to hug them and kiss them and love them and squeeze them. And I never thought I was guilty of, of, of idolatry. I never thought that God would be jealous of my love for my children. But the Bible says God turns the hearts of the fathers to the children. But always subordinated to a relationship of dependence and obedience and faith and trust and focus on the Father first. Such that if God asks you to do something that hurts your children's feelings, then that's tough. That's what you do. You do what God asks you to do. Because those children are not, are not yours. They're His. And God owns you. So He, having bought you with a price has the right to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, when to go, when not to go, what to have, what not to have, what to get rid of, what to pick up. 
And that brings not a feeling of, oh, it's just so hard having this relationship with God. It's just such a drag. I have to get rid of That's what the devil lies to people. People will look at my life, man, you've been scorned of God. You don't have any romance in your life. You don't have any helpmate. You don't have anybody to share your life with. You don't have your children in your home. Your children are alienated from you. Your ex-wife doesn't even let them call you for weeks at a time. She made you miss the Christmas season with them, the Thanksgiving season. Man, God has smitten you. And they don't understand that in the midst of all of that, God is teaching me stronger and stronger faith. And he's also using that time period to train me in deeper and deeper things about him that I could have never done with my kids. And now when God gives me my children in whatever miraculous way he wants to do so, when he gives me whatever he wants to do, God is going to bless me with my kids and he is going to bless my children with me. They, I have told them they are going to get a different father than the one that they lost. I'm not the same man that I was. I can't even wait to show them the new man that I am. Now, they know that I'm godly and they know that their father is about God and that's all I ever care and talk about. But I have matured and been given wisdom and discernment and a, and a faith in God that will withhold me up under anything. God has given me evidence that He's everything He says He is in the Bible. That He'll do everything He says He'll do in the Bible. He's just looking for people who are willing to make a sacrifice. And people say, ah. So we have a distorted view of God. We begin to believe things about God. He can't possibly be for my good. He wants to zap me with a bug zapper. He's this old grouchy man who just wants to look at all the things I'm doing wrong. He's so busy. He's running the whole universe. He's distant. He's kind of this cosmic dust cloud that's just kind of over hovering everybody and everything. No, he's a father. The only reason a man on this earth has the capacity to look upon his child with feelings of affection and desire and protection and training is because that came from the father who was. So people say, oh, this this God is like this. They have a distorted view of him, which prevents them from being able to come near him, number one. And then number two, they don't trust him. They think God has ulterior motives. He only just wants me to obey so he can send me to China. He only just wants me to obey so he can make me lose everything and have to go feed the homeless. He only just wants me to obey so I can live like a monk. People don't get that how whatever God, whatever God challenges you to give up, he puts something in its place called him. I mean, man, if I could just somehow or another convince people that Yes, you're, yes, you're going to experience pain when you follow God. Yes, it's going to hurt. There's going to be sacrifice. You're going to bleed. There's no such thing as a faith that doesn't have a cost to it. If it doesn't cost you anything, it's not faith that pleases God. God can't look upon this and go, ah, Look at him. I'm just, he's so comfy. There's no cost to it. The cost, the fact that you would do something that intentionally is going to bring suffering and pain and frustration into your life, motivated by your desire to love God and to obey Him, goodness gracious how that pleases the Father. That pleases Him. And so what does He do? Does He let you stay miserable? For a time, He does. Because He wants to see, do you really just want my stuff or do you want me? That's the first problem is God wants us to want Him, not His stuff. So, when we come to God with a sacrifice, it is going to hurt. I want you to give up that relationship. I want you to give up that drink. I want you to give up that career. I want you to give up that hobby. I want you to give up that habit. I want you to give up that food. I want you to give up this whatever, this way of thinking. Whatever it is that God wants you to give up, He's not asking you to give up without anything. He's actually asking you to trade up. Get rid of the spiritual Snickers bar in your life. It's not doing anything for you. The return on investment is going to be nil. You have to have it again every 15 minutes to get that same feeling. Set that down. And I'm going to, if I see that you're sincere, it isn't going to be one of these things where you put it on the table, there's no cost, and you get an immediate return. You put it on the table. You trust that I'm in this. 
You trust, and I, I can see that you're doing this out of your fear for me, your reverence for me, and your love for me. Well, I'm going to bless that. But I have to see through experience that you mean through your actions what you say through your talk. So you have to give me something to work with. And that is the way I tell people, if you want to get on God's radar, give Him a sacrifice. It's no different than in the Old Testament, except for we no longer sacrifice animals. Now we sacrifice things that are important. We sacrifice self. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is Hebrews or uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Michael Commentary. So a few months ago, I purchased a made-for-TV movie series called The Bible Collection Stories. And one of the movies in there is the story of Abraham, which has the uh, main actor for Abraham as Richard Harris. And it, to me, it's a lovely movie. I really like it a lot. And Tyler and I have watched it together. Now, there's a scene that is about sacrifice that I just found to be so touching. And it really actually gave me more insight on sacrifice, something that in 30 years of being a Christian, I never understood. There was something about the making of a, an animal sacrifice that I have missed all these years of being a Christian. And so I'm going to uh, play this scene. I'm going to share the audio with you. Ishmael and Hagar have just been sent off. And the next scene is Isaac. And Isaac, at this time, you know, he looks to be around, say, eight, nine something years old. He's, he's a young boy. He could even be younger than this. The previous scenes have all shown Isaac is constantly holding on to this darling little lamb. He has a black face, black ears, a little strip of white, almost kind of like a mohawk over the top of his head, and the rest of his whole body is white. He really is just this adorable looking little lamb, and he's always petting it and stroking it, and you can tell he just adores this lamb. And so in this scene that you're getting ready to hear, the boy is sitting in a shaded area around some palm trees, holding his lamb, looking down and just stroking very softly with sadness in his heart, this lamb. And so then his father, Abraham, walks up to him and this is what happens. And then I want to explain what I learned from this scene that I had not seen before or understood about sacrifice. Ishmael. He says, Ishmael. You miss him? He shakes his head, yes. Me too. You worried about him? Me too. Shall we ask God for his help? Yes, Father. Bigger lamb you love, as you love Ishmael, and we will offer its life for your brother's safety. Will you choose, or will I? I will. He's holding his favorite, and now he's looking at the ones that all have to be. What's the face? One I love. Must it be one I love? What's the face? One I love. The most. As a sign of your faith. He knows he's holding the one that he must sacrifice the servant. Now he's handing it over to Abraham. The tears running down his face. So here you have them embracing, and he sees he sees that it's too much for Isaac to handle in that moment. So he says, not today, son, not today. And when I watch this scene, when he asks, you know, 
must it be one I love, Papa? And he says, yes. He says, must it be the one I love the most? And Abraham says, as a sign of your faith, it must. And I have to say, brothers and sisters, I have never understood that element of sacrifice before. I've never really understood that some of these animals that the Israelites may have sacrificed as part of their worship of God would have been animals sometimes they saw as pets. Sometimes they loved them and adored them and they had reared them since they were little. And in this instance, again, you see that they've built this up, that Isaac had this tremendous love for this sheep because he's with him everywhere in all these scenes and all throughout this scene of Abraham inviting him to do a sacrifice, he's holding this sheep so tightly. And I told my son, I said, Tyler, I've never known this about animal sacrifice. I've only ever just seen it because I'm not really an animal person. I'm really not. My first instinct is not to go look for, to have animals in my life or anything like that. I take care of these couple of cats and I enjoy seeing all the wildlife that we have around here, but I'm not really fond of animals in that way anymore. I was when I was a child. And so I kind of miss the fact that there was so much more to sacrifice than just giving over a meaningless animal to spill its blood, but that many times they would have had to have given their best. In fact, all throughout the scriptures and the law, we see God constantly saying, you know, offer me a spotless lamb. And you know, you're not to offer the speckled ones or to give him one that looks like it has something wrong with it. So I've always recognized the principle of giving God the best animal in sacrifice. What I was missing from this is the fact that many times they would sacrifice an animal they loved. And this is why it was so pleasing to God. Not just, oh, that's just one of a hundred sheep I have. That's just a dead piece of rotting meat in a few days. But that was my little pet. Imagine if you had to sacrifice your animal and your favorite dog or cat. This would have what it would have been. They didn't have dogs or cats back then. Uh, At this time, it doesn't seem very much. There were dogs here and there, but, you know, they wouldn't have been pets like these sheep were for them. And so this just had so much more meaning to me. And I say this to you to help you understand that I have had to sacrifice the most meaningful, valuable things that God has ever given me. My five children and my wife, Persis. These recordings you're listening to come from a man who has been willing to sacrifice everything for God. I hope that means something to you. I hope that stands for something and that in the face of those sacrifices, God has given back to me so much spiritual blessing. And as a sign of my faith to him, just as Abraham was teaching Isaac, I have offered God my very best. And it has been painful. There is no doubt. It is painful. Five children, Very few people statistically will ever even have that many five children in their life. Number one, I had to sacrifice all of them. And my best gift that God ever gave me in accordance with a promise and his will for my life being my wife, Persis, I had to turn around and be willing after she went in a different direction to take my love for her my, quote, right as her husband, God-given wife of mine, and put her back up on the altar and offer her back to God to do with as he saw fit. And I want you to know, you can hear in the recordings, I will come forth as gold if you haven't already, how much God gave me back for that sacrifice in my heart. I thank the Lord God Almighty, I thank him. But I want to encourage you, please do not be afraid to sacrifice your very best for God. If he calls you to put your very best, some of you it's a career. Some of you it is a talent. Some of you it's your time. Some of you it is your health. Some of you it is a spouse. Some of you it is your marital status, you know, your singleness. Some of you it's being married. Some of you it's money. Some of you it's friendship. Some of you, it's anything that you would have in your life that is extremely valuable that God may ask you to sacrifice. This is why I have tried to help people understand that many times throughout 
Christian history. When you find somebody that had an extraordinary gift, say athletic, invention-wise, arts-wise, music, arts, all kinds of things, instead of employing that gift on God's behalf, because that's what we all think from the natural. We always think, oh, well, I have this talent to play the guitar. I should be worshiping. Oh, I have this talent to play basketball. I should be playing basketball for Jesus. Oh, I have this talent for whatever, whatever, whatever. This is something I'm supposed to use for Jesus. Rarely is that the case. Rarely is that the case. I have seen and read in Christian biography. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of several people. Many times God will ask you to take that gift that he gave you, that ability, that talent, that desire, and he'll ask you to sacrifice it for him. He'll ask you not to employ it on his behalf, but to sacrifice it on his behalf. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of the kingdom of heaven, that he does not think like we think. There's a lot of people that miss this and they always think that whatever God has already given them, that they're to employ and that it's somehow or another for them to use on his behalf. When I've seen many times, God says, nope, that is so valuable to you. I want you to put it right here and sacrifice it. And you can know that when and if you have the courage to do that, if God calls you to do that, that you are doing something that apparently is so valuable to God and it's right in line with thousands of years of Jewish history and sacrifice making where you take that thing you love, perhaps the thing you love the very most, and out of your faith and dedication and reverence to God and in view of his mercy, you present it to God. And of course... In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we see that God asks us to give him the most valuable thing that most of us possess, which is our own life. It could be children, things external of us, family members, you know, spouses and all that. But ultimately, the thing that most of us are all so concerned about preserving and the most valuable thing we have is our own life and our own will. And this is why Father says, what's the thing that you love the most? I want that. I want you to sacrifice your life on this altar. I want you to sacrifice your will on this altar. Brothers and sisters, I have done this. It does not mean then that my life is going to suddenly look like a Disney movie story and that everything's just going to be happily ever after. That's not the story we see in the Bible until we all get to glory. And so on the contrary, we see that those who obey the most suffer the most. This is the history of 2,000 years of Christian history, proving that even though you're pleasing to God, even though you love him, you're still going to have circumstances and pains and troubles and difficulties. Think of the apostles and just think of how they all died. You would think they being the foundation of the church, they being the foundation of the new Jerusalem, their names written literally on the foundation, that they deserved some mighty, glorious, wonderful ending of their life or the service they rendered, the faithfulness that they gave, you know, for keeping the faith, finishing the race the way they did. And instead, almost all of them were martyred. Now think about that. That contradicts human reasoning. And why is that? Because humans are living always for the earthly temporary and God is trying to get us to raise our eyes to the heavenly eternal. So I just pray this is something that you'll give some thought to and know that when you give up that thing to God, which is most valuable to you, whether it be someone, something, someplace, and most importantly, you and your will, that it is something that is extremely pleasing to God and you cannot lose. See, you may not get that Isaac back, but you will get spiritually the equivalent or greater back. Truly, you will get something mighty back from the Lord when you do this. Don't be afraid to surrender everything and sacrifice your most valuable to him because God will indeed reward you. End of commentary. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. And when you do that, it doesn't stay a sacrifice long. This is what I would give anything if I could get people to understand. God does not ask you to burn something up on that altar that he's not going to turn around and bless you with something in return. The sacrifices were always done in such a way that there was a giving of something and a receiving of something. You give this animal's life and God gives you back forgiveness. You give God this sacrifice, God gives you rain and harvest. So it is a, and and there's always a time period between the sacrifice and the receiving. And you don't just give to get. What we do 
the only kind of giving to get that's good in God's eyes is giving to get God. That's it. That's it. That just came to me right now. The only kind of giving to get that is good in God's eyes is giving to get God. If you give to get God's stuff, if you get to get God's, you know, attention and all those kind of things that come with that and that you got to have this fixed and you want to have this taken care of, you want him to straighten this mess out, you want him to provide for this, that's giving to get God's stuff. That doesn't please God. He's a person. I mean, I don't understand how we don't understand that's spiritual gold digging. Yes, God needs to provide for us because he said he would, Matthew 6.33. Yes, God is a giver and the provider. And yes, we are completely dependent upon Him. But God wants us to kind of check the box that that's a given. That's not something we need to worry about. That's not something we need to even be conscious of. That's milky faith, baby faith, infant faith. God wants us to be able to recognize that what's really important is Him. In our relationship with Him. And again, that only comes by sacrifice. So... Final end point, I started to make this message. People saying, wow, God doesn't speak to me like that. Wow, God doesn't do stuff like that in my life. And I want to say to them, yes, when God looks down from heaven, what sacrifice does he see you making for him that you're not making in another area of your life? If you're an invalid and you're handicapped, God doesn't expect for you to get up and run around the house doing all kinds of things for him. But if there's any other area in your life that you're giving greater dedication to, greater commitment more more diligence to at the expense of commitment and diligence to your relationship with God, God is not going to bless that, I don't think. I don't believe God is going to bless that because you make an excuse and you say, I'm too busy, it takes too much effort, I'm too afraid, I'm too whatever. And so God says, sorry, your actions say that you have enough energy and time and risk-taking in that business venture. Your actions tell me you're willing to risk and spend all kinds of time and diligence trying to make that relationship work. Your actions telling me that you don't mind wasting time hours at a time sitting on Facebook doing worldly stuff. Man, if I could just get people to get this, and I say this with indignation but with love. God is mocked when we call ourselves a Christian and then we go and live in this worldly manner that we live. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's good, perfect, and acceptable will is. His pleasing will. Be transformed, renewing of your mind. It must frustrate God to no end to see people sitting, making a mockery of the name of Christ by how they live in such a worldly, ungodly manner. And then that person wants to call upon the name of the Lord on Sunday and say, Oh, bless me, God. Oh, provide for me. You know something? The only thing that person is going to get is the same thing I got for 19 years. Common grace. Things that I chalk up to coincidence. Oh, it rained today. Oh, I've got food. All the same stuff that happens to sinners. But God is not going to allow me to experience Him. God is not going to allow me to see the supernatural. God is not going to bless me with His presence so weighty that yesterday I'm in the woods and again I felt like I needed to put my hands on my knees because the Spirit of Christ was so heavy upon me. That is not going to happen for a person who's not willing to make a sacrifice. God is blessing me so much. Today is the 2nd or 11th. 11th of February, 2015, I just had a meeting with Bobby Junkin, my good friend, who I just, I kind of discipled him for about two years, and would just meet with him, and he was in my Bible study for a year, and he's just become one of my best friends, I love him so much, and he just sat down and told me that he's at a place in his faith he never even knew was possible, and he was explaining to me that he's asked God for three new things to happen in his business by the end of the month. He wants to see God validate his faith. He's been showing up in the Word, studying the Word, believing God. He said while he was laying in bed, this peace came over him that was so strong he couldn't have worried if he wanted to and he felt like he could have levitated. And I said, brother, that is the Spirit of Christ coming upon you. But it just blesses me so much to see God answering the prayers of my heart. Yesterday, Jeremiah Turner the day before that, Brett from from uh, Africa, now Brent Bald or uh, uh, Bobby Junkin. 
I've asked God, Lord, please give me fruit that lasts. Please produce fruit in people's life that lasts. Not people that get excited for a day or two or a year or what have you. And God is so blessing. God is so blessing. I'm so, so thankful. And, you know, the other thing it said it, that blessed me is that we were talking about Laura. And he said, man, he said, I wish we would be sitting here at a place like this. And she would come walking in. He said, I would be so excited. He goes, I know I would just get my phone out and start videotaping it. And he goes, I can't even imagine what, what you would do. And I said, it's going to happen. And I said, I'll be more calm about it when it happens than what you may think. But the fact that he believes me, that he's willing to believe God, it's incredible.